You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hey, Jordan, your usual drink tonight? Yes, thank you. So, where's Eric and Ryan? Uh, They're on their way. I wanted to listen to your latest podcast, but where can I download the episodes again? You can download all of our episodes at movieguyspodcast.podme.com. You can also find us on every social media platform. Every social media platform? That's awesome. Hey, it looks like your friends are here. Let me get the first round for you guys. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bullspit. Welcome, Moose Pack, to an all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. Joining me today is a comic book fan who turned his love of comics into a career. You might not know his name, but you definitely know his work. So please welcome today's guest, Mr. Larry F. Houston. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Moose, for inviting me to the show. Much appreciated. I, I look forward to saying, trying to remember everything I did back then, way back when. Well, let's jump into it, shall we? Now, I mean, you've had a long and storied career. What was that spark that got you interested in animation and drawing? Just what... What was that thing that motivated you? Well, my, my path to animation was like not a very uh, straightforward one because um, I told my mom, I said, hey, look, I want to get a job in drawing card, you know, comic books. And she says, she didn't literally say it, but she, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, that's nice to you, but you're going to get a real job. So my first job was actually for about the first seven years out of, out of high school. Was fixing computers for a living. I worked for IBM and Data General, other companies like that, are doing computer repair. But um, somewhere when I got to be about 25 years old ish, um, as I'm fixing computers, you know, running tests, I'm drawing my little cartoons all the time. And uh, I had a little epiphany, if you will, at that young age. Of telling myself, you know, I gotta see if I can, I gotta try. I gotta, I gotta see if I can make it as an artist. And, uh, my first inclination was to become a comic book artist. But that was way back in New York. You had to live in New York to be a comic book artist. And it's like, there's no way I could afford to do that. And so some of my friends that are here in California, plus Hollywood, um, they were working at the main studios like Disney and Hannibal Bear and stuff like that. I said, okay, let me try and get a career, see if I can make it as an artist there. And by coincidence, they were having a casting call. Basically, they wanted a lot of people. They had a need for people working in a, a division called the layout department. And what that is is that you're the person that, that you, you lay out the scene like, 
if, if a person's going to walk in and take the like take the cup off the table, you set the scene up with characters that cut the table, and then you hand that off to the animator. They're the, they're the ones to actually really animate the shot. So I went in and did a test for that. And um, what I should tell you also is that when I did this, to force myself to do this, which I tell kids, don't do this today, is that I quit my computer job and was looking for an animation job. So that's actually as backwards. Don't do that. <laughs> but I, I'm, I was kind of young and stupid, so I just that's what I did. Um, and so I took the test to, to become this layout artist, took the test twice and failed it twice. And I was thinking, this is the worst decision. I, what the hell am I doing? But luckily, the layout supervisor saw when I was in high school, I would draw all these, my own version of the X-Men, my own version of the Justice League. I would draw, you know, my own comic book pages of characters that I had created. And his name was the supervisor, layout supervisor name was, uh, Herb Hazelstein. He saw these other pages in my portfolio. And he said, you know, you're not good enough to be a layout artist, but maybe you can be a storyboard artist. And so he took me upstairs to the head of storyboard at the time. And all of this is at a studio called Filmation Studios. And he introduced me, he introduced me to, uh, um, Chris, Don Christensen, who's the head of story at the time. And so after the introduction, he gave me a test of he gave me a, a script, a page of script, some model sheets and said, go home and do, you know, show me what you do, which I did. I took it home and actually I, it didn't seem to be that hard because I, I drew it up and brought it back to him the next day, which surprised him that I came back so quickly. And, um, what I didn't, he saw the work. He liked it so much. And this is what I didn't know. He had given me a live script that everybody was working on at the same time. And he liked my work so much, he actually put it into the show and hired me the same day. And that, that's nice. how I got into animation. And I was at Filmation about maybe about a year and a half to two years doing storyboards when this new company started up with Stanley called Marvel Productions in the Van Nuys. And so... Um, at that time, uh, animation was seasonal. It's like, uh, during the summer, you know, they, the cartoon started up in, uh, September and they ran into about June of next, the following year. There's, but there was a layoff, like maybe three months in between. And it was in that layoff period that I got hired to work at Marvel Productions because they were doing not a network show, it was doing a syndicated show, which didn't require, didn't have any layout attached to it. So I got hired to by uh, a director named Mark Patello to work on the syndicated Spider-Man. And so that's how I got hired at uh, Marvel Productions. And from there, um, we had Spider-Man friends and the whole G.I. Joe Transformers, a whole bunch of household toys. As for toys, uh, and I was there for about nine years. And in the middle of that, um, we were doing like 65. We did three mini series on GI Joe, and um, we and then when they did the syndicated series of 65 episodes, 
uh, one of the one of the directors, he left for some reason for another job, whatever. So I had always asked him, I want to be a director. So I got promoted to being director on GHO, the syndicated series. And that's how I became a director from, from that point forward, about 19, from about 19, uh, let's see, maybe 86. That's when I got promoted to being a director. And I was a director for most of the rest of my career. And that's, that's how I kind of got into animation, but it was kind of like I didn't go into, I wanted to be a comic book artist, but I became a computer technician. And then I went to storyboard, and then I became a director. But that, that was my route. It was not a straight. You're right. That is a windy road. Yeah. By any means, you know. Yeah. And uh, what I would add to that is that if I had called up the uh, storyboard director directly, Don Christensen, and say, I want to get a test, I think I would have gotten nowhere. But the fact that I went to, I got an introduction from the layout supervisor to the storyboard supervisor, that's a great introduction. You know, someone walking you in there and, and introducing you. That meaning that me, meaning to them that you've kind of been pre-screened a little bit. And so he gave you know he gave me a shot of being a storyboard artist. But you know it wasn't until way, way later that I talked to uh, Floyd Norman, who was actually the first black animator over at Disney. He told me that I broke a glass ceiling. And I had no idea what he was talking about until so I just was checking. But, you know, a, a black person being hired, being hired for that position of being a storyboard had never been, had never been done for Saturday morning. And so it wasn't until way later that I found out I was the first, you know, African American hired for that position. And I got hired on it based on my merit, not on what I looked like. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, as far as storyboard editors go, you were you were basically the Jackie Robinson of storyboard editors, you know? I mean, <laughs> was it any harder for you, or was it just there weren't that many African Americans in the business at the time? I mean, you being the first, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, no, there wasn't that many, and um, and, and being in storyboard. Um, up until the late, what kind of thing, the late seventies, early eighties, you know, there weren't any women storyboarders neither. And uh, there were when I got hired, there was people like uh, I'm trying to remember the name. I know uh, Holly Forsythe, and uh, and there's another lady I can't remember her name, but basically, you know, I was part of this group. Well, Filmation had basically. Um, they were very, they were a very innovative company. I put it that way. Uh, Lou Scheimer was the guy in charge of filmation, and they had actually sold the first black superhero team on television called uh, Super Stretch and Micro Woman, and uh, it was and uh, it only lasted for one season, but they Lou was very good about you know he loved animation and loved comic books and. Uh, he was open to hiring as, you know, as, a, as diverse a team as possible, as long as you had the talent. He was all, you know, he was very open for that. And so, uh, I, that's how I know, I know that's how I got in there. And, uh, so yeah, I put a lot of credit toward 
knew because he he uh he kind of gave those marching orders to the people he who worked for him, uh Don Christensen and, and uh Herb Hazelstein that, you know, he wanted good people. He didn't care what they looked like. And so uh yeah. Oh, the other lady's name was uh, uh, Lonnie Lloyd. That's right, Lonnie Lloyd. You know, it's sad that it's almost an alien concept that people should get hired strictly on talent. You know, heaven forbid you ignore what somebody looks like or acts like and just hire them on their skill set alone. You know, strip away everything but a person's talent. And that should be the benchmark for any job, any job. Yeah. And yet here we are in 2021 and it's a concept we still can't grasp. Talent still takes a back seat to what a person looks like or acts like. That's unfortunate. Yeah. It's a, a having a meritocracy is what you want. You want people who are deaf for that. And that, that should be the only criteria. The, the other thing I would say, besides meritocracy of, you know, of talent, it's also how well do you work with others? I mean, you could be a great, you could, you could do that, but, you know, we've had some, a few individuals that, that were great talents, but they didn't work well with the group. And they actually made, you know, things very, uh, tense. And some of those guys were let go. So, that happens because everybody's an individual. But for 99% of the time, we're all artists. We love working together. And so it's been a pretty good... Uh, I've had a pretty good time working animation and working with everyone there. Uh, it's pretty good. It's, it's been great. You know, um, I've worked at almost all the studios over the last 30... I was in the business for like 35 years. And so... So listeners, if this is the career path you want to take and you want to be successful, hone your craft, be the best you can be, but don't be the best dick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, you could be a, you could be a great talent. You can turn work on time. But if nobody wants to work with you, you know, it's, your career is going to be very short. Can you give me storyboarding for dummies? Like, as simple as possible. What is it that storyboard artists and storyboard editors do on a production? Like, what's your job? Yeah, um, basically, uh, story in, in animation, uh, we have writers that come up with the story and they'll say like uh you know spider-man comes into the scene and web and picks up a uh a, a glass or table or something in the scene well just like a, if you're penciling the comic book page someone has to draw that image and so you're the you're the first person that takes that written word and turn it into something visual and um Storyboard guys are, are basically the initial directors of the show. They get to pick the angle of how Spider-Man is going to do that. Like, is it going to be an upshot? Is it going to be a mount? 
Is it going to be a wide shot? Is it going to be a down shot? Is it going to be a close-up shot? There are various different ways you could stage that piece of uh, script. And so doorbell guys are the guys who that are they're the ones to take the first shot and make it work. And then, you know, once the doorbell guy has finished doing his section of a show, it used to, it, it, it's usually um, uh, a show that like, we're like three act shows, act one, act two, act three. Um, and you would do your act. And once you, once the director's gotten all the storyboard guys to turn in the work, the director would take that and see how well all three sections work together and whether the artist followed the directions of the script or how much did he ad lib, how much, you know, and, and did he pick good angles for the show? So the director would go through and either accept what the story on artist drew or he would, he would call for revisions. He would probably put little post-its over the page and say, okay, redraw this as a close-up or redraw this as a long shot or add this thing here or take this thing out. And so he would give the storyboarders uh, a batch of revisions so he would go back and revise what he's drawn and then turn that in again. Once that's done, they would take that finished show and give it to a timing director. And those guys usually had experience in actually doing real animation. And so they knew how long, how they, they wouldn't know how long it would take Spider-Man to swing in, you know, and land, walk over, pick up the table, pick up the coin, or pick up whatever it is. So they would see that shot and they would say, okay, I, they, okay, this is going to take two seconds, two and a half seconds. And so they would time out the entire show in addition to the dialogue to make sure now that the show's done. Um, let's say the show is like a 23 minute show and the show, and now the show with the timing is, is 25 minutes. Then the, the timing director would give it back to the real director. Say, okay, you're two minutes over. You got to cut two minutes off the show. And then the director would have to go through and cut it down, but try not to cut the story, you know, try and keep, make sure the story integrity remained, but cut out the excess. And when you got that done, uh, that would be prepared to be sent overseas to like Korea or Japan or something. And at the same time, the director would be approving all the models for that show, that episode, all the backgrounds, all the props, all the turnarounds. Uh, and then that would be put into a package and shipped off to, you know, whatever country it's going to go to. And everything I just described is what they call pre-production and that would magically that would go overseas and then magically about nine weeks later film would come back for the director to look over and see how well that they followed the direction we gave them and then if you had a good crew you might have maybe one or two percent maybe they made a mistake in the camera maybe they made a mistake in, in the effect you would tell them about, okay, this thing, you give them directions, say, okay, this is what needs to be fixed. And you send that overseas and, and, uh, have them do their fixes. And then you're taking the show and you're working with a, with a film editor 
to uh, say, okay, we need to make this show, cut it down to like 23 minutes. We'll, we'll do, we'll do that. Lock fit, what they call lock picture. And once you lock the picture, you send it off to the sound people to put sound to it. You send off a copy, send it to another person to do, uh, music. And then you send it off to the third person to do, uh, to, um, lock in the visual, like make sure, you know, the colors are right. You know, they'll do, uh, of the word, yeah, color correction. Sorry, that's what it's called. And uh, once that, once everybody had a chance to play with it, we've gotten all the retakes. And then you go to, uh, like an edit day, uh, and they would take all the elements you just I just talked about, and we we do like what they would call a final mix, and we mix all the the sound effects and music, uh, color correction put it all together into one package. And once that's been approved, then you send that off to the network. Now, just imagine everything I just described to you. It all happened. You had to do that 13 times because it's uh, a 13-episode show. Jeez. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of work. Once I, once, I, once, I discovered, once I was promoted to being a director, it was like, it's a lot more, you get a lot more authority, but you also get a whole lot more responsibility because you're responsible from that thing from beginning to, from uh, inception to birth. <laughs> well, and I mean, you, you've spent most of your career as a storyboard artist, haven't you? Yes. I, I did it from like, I was a storyboard artist from um, when I got into the business in 81, I think. And then in 86, I think that's when I got promoted to being a director. And it's like, that's when your eyes open up to <laughs> like life was so much simpler when you're just a board artist. <laughs> you do the work, turn it in, and that's it. Well, and I know, I mean, you, you finally got to work on some comics because you did the mini comics for the He-Man action figures. Yes, I did. And part of the, that was done before I became a director. When I was, when I was just doing storyboards, and I got a call to do some He-Man comic books. I went, great. So I was working in the daytime doing storyboards, and at nighttime I do the He-Man comic books. It, it was like, it, that was fun because I got a chance to, um, I couldn't ever, I couldn't go to New York to become a, a comic book artist at Marvel or DC, but I got a chance to express myself in the mini comic books. That was great. Um, but what happened for me was like, I think I did about 10 mini comics. And about the time when I told him I couldn't do any more mini comics was when I became a director. And boy, did it take, I, I had no more time left. That little, the fun time I had doing mini comics disappeared because being a director is so much more responsibility and you're, you're taking the work home with you when you're thinking about the show and trying to keep track of all the little, all the moving parts. Because uh, you're basically, if something goes wrong, you get blamed for it. So you've got to make sure you're on top of everything. So that was part of the reason why I stopped doing mini comics. Was when I became a director. Through your uh, storyboard career, you've worked on some pretty big shows i mean you already mentioned you know incredible hulk and spider-man and his amazing friends but 
There's also uh, Thundar the Barbarian. Yeah, with with uh, Thundar, I got a chance to to work and not work with, but I got a chance to go into the office of uh, uh, Ruby Spears and meet with Jack Kirby and Gil Kane, and uh, um, to meet with these guys that were always my childhood idols, and actually to meet with them and talk to them casually, like I'm doing now, was was like. I was on cloud nine, you know, and uh, Thunder was such a great concept because it, it was like a return to, you know, action adventure shows, which were pretty much had been wa- watered down in uh, the early, the late, early to late seventies. You know, pretty much uh, there were a lot of people who thought it was too violent. Um, it would make our kids turn into, you know, zombies or whatever. So, you know, Thunder was just fun to do. And it was, you know, they got a chance to actually cut loose, you know, with the sun sword and magic and stuff. Ookla. No, it was a lot of fun. And uh, with Kirby's imagination and Gil Kane's design. And, uh, yeah, no, it was, that, was, that was fun. I really enjoyed working on Thunder the Bulgaria. That was great. You know, I mean, G.I. Joe's nothing to shirk at either. Oh, yeah. G.I. Joe was, the fun part about G.I. Joe is that it was not, like Thunder was Saturday morning. Uh, G.I. Joe was actually syndicated. So being a syndicated show uh, meant that we didn't have all the restrictions that you would find on, um, that you had to adhere to on a network show. So we were able to, you know, have people jump around and punch people and do basically normal, what you would say is normal action stuff, stuff you could not do um, on a network show. An example I'll tell you, when I was working, I was working at Filmation on uh, Lone Ranger. You know, if the bad guy was coming at Lone Ranger, he has a gun, but he can't shoot it. So what he would do is, there were two things, either the, the bad guy be running at Tonto, Tonto would step to one side, the bad guy would go through frame, you'd have an off-screen crash, then you cut to the guy, and he's on the ground like he hurt himself. The, the, the hero didn't do anything. So it's like very passive-aggressive storytelling. Or like the Lone Ranger would shoot on chandelier. Chandelier would fall and, and capture the bad guy, something like that. In G.I. Joe, you know, Duke would just punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Just take them down, you know. It was like you didn't you didn't have to be so creative. It's like no, good guy, bad guy, punch. There you go. And so GI Joe was like so much more easier to do. And uh, you know, obviously, it started. It even though it wasn't Saturday morning, we still had we knew we couldn't do a lot of stuff, but we had a lot more freedom than before. And there were no guns. Everything's lasers, you know, stuff like that. So it was kind of it was a little ridiculous for people shooting and nobody could hit it, hit anyone, but the overall broad adventure, since they were trying to market the shows to a certain demographic, a very young demographic, just said, okay, you accept that, and then just trying to have fun of showing some adventures within the context of the rules we had to deal with. So, you know, other than that, we could just be imaginative, blow up ships, blow up planes, um, punch people, do things. You know, no blood, none of that stuff, but um, it was just fun. 
you can actually have some fun. And so G.I. Joe was like, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I got a chance to, that was my first chance to actually in, introduce my influences from anime because um, into into my style. I My influences art-wise started in comics with Jack Kirby, John Buscema, Gil Kane, Gene Cullen, and in, in an animation cinema, it was uh, Hayao Miyazaki. He had done these uh, films like uh, Caliosha's Castle, Nausicaa, uh, Lausica, and he was like so good at creating, two, taking 2D and making it look like 3D, but it, it was like he was fantastic. And to tell you the truth, a lot of us at Filmation, we would go down to Little Tokyo in Los Angeles and buy these laser discs that were like the size of like a Domino's pizza. And we would have a two-hour lunch. We'd put on the disc and watch it. And we were all like mesmerized by how he was able to get this type of storytelling, this type of the illusion of 3D in 2D. And, uh, but it was all, it was no subtitles. It's all Japanese that you had no idea what, 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 the, what was being said, but his storytelling, his storyboarding was so good. Other than subtext of like, you know, like, he's my father, this is the brother, you know, that kind of stuff. The broad strokes of what was going on was easily translated to, you know, you didn't have to know the language to know what was going on. So for me, when I was, when I got to do G.I. Joe, that was my first shot at taking that type of, uh, uh, incorporating that kind of style into my storytelling and putting it into, uh, G.I. Joe. And I got a chance to do a lot of that. And that was great. That was a great way of, uh, learn, you know, showing what I've learned and adding that to the show. And from that point forward, I just kept, every time I worked on a TV show, I tried to always challenge myself by, okay, uh, knowing, you know, I, I, I had been always, I had continued always been, uh, buying Japanese shows and watching them and, uh, dissecting them, you know, saying, how did they do this? How did they do that? So that when I was, when I get the opportunity in the show, like a dramatic story point, I could maybe incorporate that type of, uh, thinking and put, and make the show that I'm working on, make it feel different, make it feel unique, make it feel like something that, that the American audience hasn't seen before. So I, I used to do a lot of that in uh, all the work I did. And uh, I, there are places where, like, I use techniques like that. Like, uh, the, the one of the things that I did it in, um, oh, God, what's it called? A Rogue Tale, um, where Ms. Marvel chasing a, a plane and rips off the top the, the top of the hood of the the roof of the plane going after a rogue. And that shot, I remember, was inspired for me, was a show called Area 88, which is a very uh, elaborate um, combat, aerial combat film that um, I was able to take something I had been inspired by and put into a show um, and I did that also with G.I. Joe in different different spots I can I can see it in my mind but I can't tell you what episode <laughs> it was but anyway uh, you know I so that that to me is what I uh, 
uh, helped bring my uh, storytelling skills, made it better and better because I just tried to always try and do something new, do something different. You know, don't do the same thing I've done before. Try something. Um, there's a there's a there's a thing and I think in the final decision, the first season of, of the X Men, where Gambit and, and Wolverine are in a tunnel, and then um, they see Sentinel, and then Wolverine locks Gambit out and goes after the Sentinel by himself, and in that sequence. It's pitch black until Wolverine slices into a, a sentinel. Then it goes black again. And every time he, or they shoot their, their beams out. So it goes from light to dark, light to dark, light to dark. It's like a strobe effect. And basically what that was, was like I was trying to challenge myself to do something new. And uh, a lot of fans on Twitter that I, I, I just recently joined it, um, they liked that. You know, that, that, that was a memorable sequence. And I was really taking a, you know, I was really trying to express myself, but also taking a chance because I didn't know how the overseas would do it if they would follow my direction. They did, actually, which was great. But it was one of those things where you try something. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. I was really glad that it did work because it really made that show, um, uh, be well received. And sometimes I get talking, it's like I lose track of what the hell I was talking about. It's like I went down this rabbit hole. Where where did I go? <laughs> hey man, it's these first hand accountings. It's that, that's why I do this. It's you know, you can read these stories in a book, some of them. Uh but you you don't get that same feeling. You know, it's you don't get that same, like, wide-eyed emotion, like, nostalgic feeling. Like, you're sitting down, listening to your grandparents or someone just tell you a story. And that's what you get out of this. Right, right. Which is probably the coolest part. I mean, I bring you guys on, and you regale us with stories from us as fans our favorite shows which leads me to the next one that you did some work on and that would be teenage mutant ninja turtles oh, oh yeah that was a uh, that was a lot of fun the first series i i think they did a uh, i was a part of the mini series that they first did See, back then what it was it's like with gi joe and turtles, um, they would do like a test run. Okay, here's the money. We're going to do five episodes and see what the reaction of the audience is, and see what you know, see what people if people like the concept. And so they would do a five part mini series of GI Joe, five part mini series of Turtles. And I was involved with the Turtles. It's actually the company was called um, Murakami Wolf. And kind of the fun part about this is that the guys who owned the turtles actually took their property initially to um, Marvel Productions. But because they were so swamped with, I mean, they literally had to buy, not buy, but lease three buildings. So they were doing all of these shows for Hasbro. 
that when the Turtles guys tried to bring their, their property to Marvel production, to like, hey, why don't you do a show with the Turtles? They turned them down. They might say, look, here's a company called American Wolf wanted to go check them out. So they just got over there, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, and that's where that's how the Turtles got started at American Wolf and everything. And uh, the guys there, I had knew the guys there, and they said, hey, you know, we need some, they want some action-adventure storyboard guys. So they, they gave me and several other people a call. So I got a chance to work on the miniseries. And then I also got a chance to work on the regular series. And um, I was not on, like I said, I wasn't on staff. I was doing a freelance. But I, I did 118 episodes freelance. I did the, I did, the, I was almost the number one storyboard artist for working on that show. The only other, there was one other person, Dan Thompson. And um, he was actually on staff, so he actually did more than me about, he did uh, 127. I did 118, but I I love work on that show. It was like I was drawing like crazy, and they. This is another one of those shows where you didn't have any restrictions. You could just have fun and make up stuff. You know, you'd have a script where the turtles would do some certain things, and so within the context of that story, you could make up stuff and have, have secondary actions, people doing crazy things, um, just having fun. Basically, that's kind of like a. Um, it, that the concept of saying having fun is hard to quantify, you know. It, other than you know, it's fun when you when you when you see it. You know, it's fun when you're drawing it. And uh, we, a lot of us working on the show, it, it was that was what we were enjoying quite a bit was just uh, being able to be an expressive artist working on the turtles. And so, uh, yeah, I did that for like turtles. Three or four years, I think. The, I was, whatever the run of the original series was in the eighties, that that's how I worked there for like four or five, whatever it is, four or five years. And uh, the the oh, the fun part was that they would give us free toys, and so um, so we could know what the characters looked like. So on my wall, I have an open Ninja Turtle, the original toys from way back when. They're they're on the wall with push pins. So I got all the... Uh, Here's a retirement plan for you. Yeah. <laughs> but I tell you, when I did, when they gave us that, I didn't think of it as an investment. I just want, I had a blank wall with nothing on it, so I started decorating it with the toys. So I had G.I. Joe, I had Transformers, not Trans, well, not Transformers, no, but G.I. Joe and Turtles and uh, other shows I've worked on. So I got a, that's my that's my man cave. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many perks of being an artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think in my storage room, I think I have some GI Joe, the big stuff like the jets, uh, some of the little tanks and stuff. But you know, after thirty years, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know what I have stuff back there. Now. You worked on a lot of what would be a lot of people's, mine included, uh, favorite shows as a kid, but there's one in particular you worked on that I want to talk to you about, and that's uh, Pirates of Darkwater. Oh, yeah. Yes, I did. Now, of the shows we've talked about, you got to be a little darker on that one. I mean, the colors and the animation style, just 
the whole show just had a darker vibe from everything else that you've worked on to this point. Yes, it was. And I, I remember uh, being asked, the, the director was a friend of mine, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember his name right now, but uh, we had worked together. The director of that series had previously been the director of uh, Denver, The Last Dinosaur. And so he knew me from working on, on that series. I did some freelance for him on that show. So when he did Pirates, it was quite different from anything I had worked on, i tell you that. And uh, it took a while to get into the, uh, you know, the style and the story. But because when you're, for me, when I'm trying to uh, storyboard something, I like to figure out, I like to know what, who, who's the character? Like what, what's motivating? Is he, you know, evil, happy, sad, selfish, angry, um, you know, because then I can add character traits. To the shot, to the scenes I'm drawing, that you know, pretty much reinforce who he is. You know, you know, knowing that uh, what motivates the character helps me to to draw the uh, the sequence more correct. You know, the you know, drawing the uh, an action sequence. You know, two planes fighting each other. I really need to know the motivations. But when you have characters inter interacting with each other. You want to, you want, I want to try and reposition the biting language and reposition the camera so that it evokes more of what the scene is all about. Uh, so that's, that's, that's my style of trying to tell stories is also not just tell what the writer wants, but also trying to understand what, what's happening in the scene. So the dark water, I had to get, uh, I had to have a lot of conversation about who the hell are these people? <laughs> <I know. laughs> so, yeah, I mean, when you talk to now, if you had any art from that show, I'd give my left arm for it. I might have some. I know I got the toy that's stuck on the wall. Would you like a left arm? <laughs> uh, I don't need a left arm, but, you know, it's just sitting there. I, it, it's just. I got a lot of the characters on the wall of the toys. You're you're actually one of the few ones that actually brought that up. That's pretty good. Are you kidding me? I love Pirates of Darkwater. Wow. And it's probably one of the most underrated TV shows ever. And it's also one of the hardest to get. I think Best Buy has it, or had it, I'm not sure. But... Whenever they have it, I don't have the money. When I have the money, they don't have it. It's just like, <laughs> ah, come on. Ah, that's right. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Like gone in 60 seconds, man. Pirates of Darkwater is my Eleanor. I ain't got it yet, but chasing that dragon until I'll get it. One of these days, I'll have it. I ain't got it yet, but I'll get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I understand. I don't think I have, yeah, I don't know. If, hmm, I'd have to check my collection to see if I have that. Because I try, I've always tried to at least collect what a, you know, a, a copy of the shows I've worked on. And I'd, if I have Pirates, it might have been VHS way, way back when, if I had anything. I have no DVD of it. I'd have to. So you then transfer from this dark show in Pirates of Darkwater to a much cheerier, brighter show with a message in Captain Planet 
and the Planeteers. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, my 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 friend um, uh, Will Minio uh, was put in charge as the supervising uh, producer of the show over at uh, over at a company called Deep, and uh, he brought me in as the director uh, for the first season, and uh, I got a chance to be the first director on the series, and uh, you know it was one of those shows that was. That was really one of the things that's really remarkable for me, which I didn't realize was that because it was a Ted Turner show and it was a pro ecology show, he was able to get a lot of, uh, uh, TV, uh, stars working on the show. I remember, I remember meeting Meg Ryan. I remember meeting Lou, Lou, uh, Lou from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, I remember meeting Ted Turner himself, and he's really tall. Um, and his wife at the time was, uh, uh, oh, God, I just lost her name. Um, um, I, I hate this when you get old, you can't remember stuff. <laughs> Jane Fonda. Yeah, that's her name, Jane Fonda. Um, and uh, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, that kind of, you know, it was like a ton of people that uh, big-time actors who wanted to be part of this pro-ecology show. And, uh, yeah, so I got a chance, again, I got a chance to do, um, to bring some of that anime approach to the storytelling, but also, um, you know, it was a pro-ecology show. We got a chance to do that plus PSAs at the end. It was, it was, that was a lot of fun. Cause, uh, I think after, uh, Captain Planet, um, uh, I think I worked, I became the director, the director of, the karate kid afterwards. I think that's what happened. And, you know, after I left and other directors took over the series after me, I think there were like three more working on Captain Planet, but at least I got to do the first one, first year of it to help set the style of what they wanted to do. And, uh, oh yeah, the other actor, I just remembered Lamar Burton. That's right. He, he was, he was Kwame on the show. Right out powers combined earth. And, uh, trying to remember other stuff about Cap- Captain Planet. It was, that was a pretty good, uh, that was a really nice, well run show. Like I said, a lot of move, a lot of, a lot of, uh, move TV stars. See, and y'all were smooth about it too, because as a kid, uh-huh. we didn't know you guys were trying to teach us to be safe about the planet. We just saw a right. cool show, you know, but. Now you go back, you watch it as an adult, you're just like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. We, they, the one thing we both knew, uh, Will and I both knew, is that the show has to be entertaining. It does, you know, you want to have all, all the villains were like, uh, you know, archetypes of what pollution is, you know, personified in each of these characters. And so you had to keep the show entertaining. But there's a, you know, the, the subtext was there. Sometimes not very, not very well hidden, but at least, <laughs> at least to a young mind, it, it, it was like, it wasn't obvious. As an adult, it is. And so uh, we just tried to keep it entertaining for the kids and the subtext will come out later. And my kids love it and they have no clue what's going on. So I guess the concept still works. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 
yeah, you, you can, you can, um, how can I put this? You can, um, bundle, uh, education and entertainment if it's done right. Well, Larry, this has been fun and enlightening, but I think we're going to have to continue our journey down memory lane at another point. <laughs> okay. But hold on to your antlers, Moose Pack, and come back in two weeks for part two of my time with Larry Houston, where we talk about X-Men and the rest of his career. And that, folks, is no load of bullspit. Ooh-wee, that sure was some bullspit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you need help. Be sure to tune in next time.